so we welcome our podcast audience, and this is the sixth in this series. Um, I think our last one was Roots, I think we titled it, um, and this one will be our, our number six. Okay, as we usually do, and if our podcast wants to join Ray and I, we try to be in the room. And that's a sense, you know, most of life doesn't call us really. It's a lot of hit and run and quick fix stuff and very half attention and moving on to other things. So we first try to, um, using our our back, trying to get my, we're in a different place today, so I'm trying to get my, uh, I don't I usually have a straight chair, but I'm on the sofa, I'm on the, I'm on the sofa. I'm on the sofa. No, I'm on the sofa. My <laughs> mic is my mic is um, coming down. Okay, so um, that sense of we feel our feet on the floor. As I say, if the audience wants to be with us, can do that. Is checking your back and keeping your attention to a straight back. Um, I had the awareness of breathing, and between those two, about feet on the floor and having a sense of touch the feeling that I exist, I am, I'm here in this room today. Now, before any kind of journey, there's a kind of a prep before we would go anywhere, we take a car journey or something. Uh, what shape is the car in? Do we have water. Um, are we prepared for the journey? And that's kind of what the grounding's about. But we're quickly going to run into something called resistance. So Spray and I sit here, and you and you're computer, where you are, you'll see that it's not going to be easy to keep a sense of the self, that we're going to go into um, daydreaming, all that will begin. So we, um, we're going to quickly encounter what I call the ego defense system, which is that that system does not, has a, that system has a lot of resistance against self-discipline. So that's exactly what grounding calls for at the beginning the kind of self-discipline, because normally I would, I would droop over or cross my legs or do all that. I'm trying not to do that now, and see how you do with that. And third, we need a special attention for that, not just the attention that uh, of something that draws our attention, our desire. This is attention that we need to um, uh, create for ourselves to follow this. Now, the other thing is. Hey Jim, can you give like a example of a special attention? Let's see. It's just it's it's a special attention is a a, um, a contact with the body. I'm feeling my feet on the floor, and I have an awareness and a wish to try to stay in tune here today. Just a sense of that. That's, now our life outside the room. Now that's an interesting one. To, to uh, think about for a moment. Whatever we do in our life, our profession, our marriages, our relationships of all different kind, um, what are we doing when we're away from the person, or away from the profession, um, and um, our integrity away, our dignity away from the session? For example, if I had uh, come here drunk today or I went on a binge on the weekend or something or 
um, really was unfair to other people and so on. I would bring that vibration into this room. Um, you know, one thing I can think of uh, what I went through, I was at a weekend kind of a retreat, three-day weekend, kind of a Zen uh, situation where there's meditation and I was um, uh, cleaning toilets. It was part of my crew with what I was doing, cleaning bathrooms and so on. But I remember at dinner time, after going through, it's the first time I'm cleaning those toilets in a long time. I usually work in the library. Anyway, when I got to lunchtime, and this might be an example, so I was doing all that kind of um, self-discipline, trying to stay with the, the task that I had. And I was sitting at the table, and I got there early. And I was sitting down, ready for lunch. I was hungry and kind of complaining to myself about that I drew that job of having to do that. And as I was waiting there, um, the desserts were already put on the table, but the main course hadn't come yet. And I was maybe, there were going to be about 50 or 60 people there. And I was um, sitting there, and I looked across next to me, and there was a dessert placed at that person's portion. There was mine. And I noticed that his dessert was twice as much as mine was. <laughs> and, um, and yet there was no hardly anybody in the room. It's as though there wasn't anybody there sitting in that seat, but I really wanted his dessert. And that feeling came, imagine, after all I've been doing in the other way, uh, the hunger was there, and I was thinking, how could I do it without anybody seeing them switching these desserts? So I looked around, seemed like people weren't looking, and there was nobody sitting there. So I did a quick switch on desserts. Now, there, that part of me, almost like a, gl a little gluttony in there that was rehearsing, having that bigger dessert and wanting that, and was willing to switch them and saying to myself, you know, what did I, I didn't do anything wrong. There's nobody even there, you know. So I had all kinds of justifications about that. Um, and so now I had the bigger dessert, and I felt guilty that I did that, particularly in this setting where everybody's trying to be mindful. Um, and then finally when it was over, and it ended up the other fellow was at the end of the table. He didn't even, he didn't even eat his dessert. So now I had to figure a way to take it home. So that was a new plot I was working on. How could I, because it was this pineapple upside down cake that I just love and it was, they cook so wonderful at this place. It's all uh, conscious cooking. But now I had to figure a way. He got up and he left and even have his dessert. I had to figure a way to slip that in my pocket. Yet it was a cake. You know, it was going to fall apart. And I had, then I had to figure out, run into the kitchen and get some wax paper. This is all in this plot. This had a little gluttony world I was in. And run back and had to slip it in there and also get it into my pocket. And it wouldn't fit. And I was in this guilty scene. So it was, it was like a funny, crazy little thing. But it was like that part of me, there was a gluttony feeling about it. It wanted... It, it just wanted more. I wanted to make up for cleaning toilets. It wanted even more. So, Ray, anything in your life to do with something that gets out of control or goes another direction? Or oh, and I well, I'm a smoker, as you know, and I'll 
you know, I switched brands so they would smoke slower, but it really hasn't worked out for me. I mean, I'll, I'll smoke one after another. And the only time I get conscious of it is when I'm around, like, my girl, and she'll call it to my attention. And then I've worked with you with it, and you say, okay, just give a beat count of 20 before you light the cigarette, and then maybe you won't light the cigarette. So I get up to about seven, and I light the cigarette anyway. But it's, um, yeah, it's a tough thing. But I, I have that too. But you, you also, and you didn't you used to have? Were you heavier at one time? <coughs> yeah, yeah, I was a, a beast almost as a child life. Um, yeah, I was. Oh, yeah, I was. I was. Let's see, I'm about five eight, and at one time in my teenage, I was like one. Tw- I'm sorry, two twenty five. So you can picture on a small frame. 225 pounds, like a linebacker weight. Of course, was, none of it was a muscle. It was just all, you know, flab. Because f- food was the way I compensated for how bad I felt about myself. In a world where I couldn't achieve anything, a world that there were tough people, and um, you know, we talked before about uh, I have some background of relatives in the mafia. Um, I had an uncle that uh, we'll call him John. We won't give any names, but Uncle John, the, the Don of Atlantic City, before they even called it that then. So these were pretty um, strong-minded and people that had a lot of uh, toughness inside them, and I was like weak, and so I, you know, I felt felt bad about that. But being out of control, or well, the idea of of um, what. What do I bring to this room today that was prior to this? Now, mine was a little example of something. It wasn't not a, any, any great uh, sacrifice that I made or, or gluttony that I was involved in. Did you get that piece of cake home? Yeah. Uh-huh. You did? Yeah, I got it home, and I visioned that for the next morning for breakfast. So this mine was constantly... And then Lynn ate it, right? What? And then, then Lynn ate it. it. <laughs> Right, oh no, I know, I know just where to put that where she wouldn't find it. Um, you know, I my mom, you know, you see, you know, there's four boys in the family, so she would have to cook up a storm, you know, as you know. But um, you know, and I played football, obviously, and then uh, I remember she would make corned beef and cabbage, and if there was any corned beef left, I'd smuggle it into my room and I'd put it under the bed. Mm-hmm. And she'd be looking for it, like, where's the rest of the corned beef? And I got mm-hmm. caught because of smell. Under the bed? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'd hide it under the bed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'd eat it. No mm-hmm. problem. couple of days. So I definitely have that thing going, too. And alcohol's a good one for me. And then you were talking about what are you bringing into this room, and I remember talking to you like a couple of years ago where I have come and seen you you know, when I've had a beer or two before I get into the room, just because I couldn't handle it. Mm. You know, so, and I don't know if you ever noticed, or I always would tell you after the fact, too. And then I was always surprised at the compassion that you gave for that, Mm. you know, because I was so conditioned to getting yelled at at a level when I was a kid, you know, if you did something Mm. wrong. You know, and then I would tell you or I'd confess to you, like, okay, listen, here's what I did. And um, you would just go, mm-hmm, and then we'd go deeper with it. And it was like I never got the backlash that I was expecting. 
you know i was always expecting to be yelled at or you mm. know to you know hit at some level yeah because you know, my mom was rather confrontational my dad he was easy to get away from because he wasn't around anyway and then you know and I, again i have the same thing my father does as far as when something gets a little dicey or you got to talk i'm leaving mm. you know just like him yeah now that very, very, very triggered something for me when he just said that about uh, how I saw him then. But that's something that kind of I thought of. Um, it's it's uh, having a feeling for the core dignity of a person. That's that. This is a wonderful topic. I think um, there there is a um, what I'm calling a core individual individual um, dignity of a person born with and um, if it's nurtured and held and how people see it in that way so it's it's like um, it would be to to really be you have to be perceived in the way that Ray was just beginning to speak about it opening up this whole area the idea of touching uh, the core dignity of a person, of listening to them, seeing behind even what they're saying, being in touch with him. It's something, as a therapist, I'm aware of, to touch a core dignity. And that will lead us into um, into a kind of a prison topic. People have been writing in, or computerizing in, whatever, however that's called, um, about I introduced the idea that I was in the prison system for a while, and uh, they want to hear about it. So maybe I'll, let me. And, that, and there was so much that happened that I I, I don't want to take a lot of time with it, but I would just want to introduce it, and then add pieces as we go along. The introduction to the prison life was um, I was called by the, a chaplain in the way, Wayside. I think it was called Wayside Prison, and said if. If, um, if I'd be willing to go into the prison and do a psychological testing on a young prisoner that was about to have a court appearance and he needed some support for something, the, the state did a psych, and that, but he needed a personal supportive psych for himself. If, I will, if I'd be willing to go into the prison. So that's how it all started. And was thought, this in his defense or the state's defense? In his defense. The state had is all set up, and they were, you know, they, they felt them guilty and so on. So I thought, geez, I don't know. I've never been in a prison before. I I thought it would kind of be a little of an adventure, and uh, uh, this was all. Um, I was a volunteer. The person didn't have any money, um, so that was my entrance, and I went down the wayside, and it was quite something. And I remember that even finding your way around, even getting into the prison, was quite a step-by-step, go through checkpoints. It's a whole deal. Um, to get, but it took a while to get through the three checkpoints. Did they pat you down? Um, when I got to the last place, I think they did, if I'm, if I'm remembering right. Okay, so then I went in, and I remember that's the first thing I did in prison, is I took this prisoner and they send him and we didn't have a room the prison didn't provide that had no no place for me to do this so we actually in desperation we did it in the chapel 
So we both sat in the chapel, and uh, he told me his story. Now, that's the beginning of, of, I think it's the first time he's ever been listened to, when he told me a little of his life. Um, and my connection with him as I sat there, just making notes, but really paying attention to his pain and his predicament. He was only in his 20s. Oh, and he's been charged with something serious. And um, and I felt then that what I might be able to have in the prison is all for the very thing we're talking about, to be heard for the first time, to be seen for the first time. And this leads me to that line that I um, used in a lecture, to be really seen is to be born. And a lot of the fellows in prison, that's the last thing they had. Um, they're given up a long time ago and followed roads, and they weren't seen deeply. So what I could offer them is to give them a space and time so they could tell their story. Um, so let me just start that off in the prison. There are a lot of little things that went wrong. and uh, My last thing was... Um, when I had to leave, I then really got in touch with the danger of the prison, is that I was actually in a prison riot there. I got, um, and that one is kind of a long story. Um, but there are different kind of important stories, particularly on the death row part, the part of being... Hey, were you scared of meeting with this guy? Uh, no, I wasn't. I, at that time, I didn't even know enough. I thought it would be safe. I wasn't afraid to meet with him. He was kind of a mild guy, and there was no guard with us, so we were alone. But I wasn't—I didn't know enough even to be afraid at that time. Later on, when I really learned the possibilities of what could happen when I'm alone, because uh, later on, um, this is another a lot happened before this. But um, my title was prison chaplain, um, because they didn't had hard. Did you have hard to wear time. a collar? No, no, I didn't. No, no, I never wore a collar. I was called a lay prison chaplain, and I wore a black armband, and that's how they know, the prisoners know that was what my job was. Um, and uh, later on, when I really worked, this time, remember, I'm not, I'm not in the, what's the name of that part of the prison? Solitary confinement? Uh, yeah. No, the, the, the Supermax. Okay. I wasn't in Supermax, and this was just a, uh, other another person that wasn't in Supermax. Uh, but later on, when I began, when I became a chaplain, then I worked in Supermax, and there, there, there could were possible dangerous situations. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, but uh, when you met this guy the first time, you know, did you buy his story? Not that you bought his story, but did, did he? Did you see him differently? Uh yeah, I remember that. He did he was, cry? Uh, let's see. I don't think he cried. No, he didn't cry. He was already pretty hardened, and the story was telling me, and the part I was connected with him in were almost like two different places. But I could find the vulnerable part in him, the part where there is some compassion, in spite of the hard-nosed story he was telling. 
And later as we went on, we spent about an hour and a half together, I kind of told him that, that I connected to a different part of him that was softer and more suffering in it. Um, and he understood that. And later, and I, as I, and that was it. I think I just had one, one session with him and I wrote something up. But I later then saw him and uh, I visited him in the prison at one of the cells. This, remember, this was going on in the chapel. I actually went into his cell and uh, he remembered that. And we were able to have a little deeper kind of relationship because of that. Jim, you got you got to get back into the riot thing now. Well, that's 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 that'll take up the whole the that's whole fine. thing. <laughs> All Did right. anybody like hold a shank to you or anything weird? What shank knife? Did anybody ever shank me? Yeah, you were were you like in the midst of it? Oh, oh yeah. Okay, no. Let me. All right. Let me. How do I say this in a brief ways? It was a Wednesday night. I had finished my shift. And I was in solit- I was in a part of the prison uh, where there was a lot of solitary confinement, so there wasn't people milling around. Though I did take them out sometimes in a special room to talk to them, and there there could be a, a little dangerous. But I usually picked the ones I was used to now, and I know they they wouldn't harm me. Uh, There's certain psychopaths and so forth that I couldn't do that with. But anyway, this night I was finally finished my shift uh, in Supermax. I was really wanting to get home. And I was, uh, we all met. There was a few other people doing the same work I was doing. And we all met and they were saying goodnight to each other. But a new woman just came in and said she was doing something special in 800. It was a, a gang, um, kind of a gang uh, unit. And she said, uh, would you help me? Um, would you help me bring some stuff up to... He had, she had some things she wanted to give him, and I really didn't want to do it. I really wanted to get home. I never so been. You in, kind of sensed it. Yeah, I'd never. I mean, I've heard. I've passed eight hundred, and it kind of scared me a little bit to see the kind of uh, sounds and hollering, and I would hear from eight hundred. I had to walk by eight hundred to get to Supermax. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, she said, "Just help me up to." Um, uh, 800 unit. So I had a couple, there was a couple of boxes. So I said, okay, I'm just going to help her up there and kind of help her and get started. Then I was going to leave and go home. So I, we got up to 800 and, um, uh, was called for, for prisoners who was interested in this meeting to come. And about, I would say 200, maybe 150, 200 prisoners lined up to go into this special room where this woman was going to give a talk. I was going to leave. So they all lined up, and I was going to greet them as they came in. And as I was at the door, and she was at the door, I depended on her. She was she worked the unit, and she knew I was new there. And she said, oh, God, I forgot something. Jim, I'm going to run out to my car. I'll just greet these fellows in. And, um, <laughs> she set you up, man. <laughs> No, well, she didn't know this was going to happen. But anyway, she said, I'll be right back. Just so by the time, so as I've met each one coming in and welcomed them into the room, but they were a different group. They were really tattooed and all, they were, this was the toughest group I've ever seen. So that scared me. Of what persuasion predominantly? Oh, Chicano. They were, um, 
Let's see, I don't think there are, I don't think, you know, there were a couple of blacks. Uh, there were, um, what's that motorcycle group? Some Mongols? Yeah, something like um, the, a tough motorcycle group was in there. Aryan um, Nation. Aryan Nation. And they all had their all different tattoos. So I thought, God, if anything would ever go wrong here, wow, what a terrible thing. You think the Aryan Nation would have took care of you? <laughs> no. Tune in next week for part two of the Shawshank Jim Corolla.